This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Naz and Wally Sports Hour, heard Sunday mornings at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Naz and Wally Sports Hour, heard Sunday mornings at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The Naz and Wally Sports Hour is a paid program. Opinions expressed on the show are those of Naz and Wally and their guests. The world doesn't need another sports show. It needs an awesome sports show. You're listening to the Naz and Wally Sports Hour on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Good morning, Naz. Good morning, Wally. Neil, the boys are back. Let's talk sports. Good morning and welcome to the Naz and Wally Sports Hour, live again from Liberty Village in downtown Toronto on the new 740 AM radio. Uh, My co-host Naz Marchese will not be joining us today. He's down in Alabama. I was a... at the game yesterday, and he'll be calling us later uh, later on in the show to talk about that. With me this morning, our co-host at large, Mark Kennedy. Welcome, Mark. Good morning, Wally, and uh, a shout-out to Naz, who is the co-host who never argues with me. Anyways, did you manage to avoid all the uh, all the traffic this morning in downtown Toronto, the Scotiabank Marathon uh, in town? Uh, yes, um, I, I was down in this area yesterday for the Toronto FC game and saw all the signs, so I came down incredibly early. Anyways, we wish all the runners out there who are out pounding the pavement right now uh, have a great run, have a lot of fun, and, uh, and uh, enjoy your run. Anyways, we have an interesting show today. Really looking forward to two special guests. Joe the Throw Theisman, uh, a former Toronto Argonaut, uh, brings back a lot of great memories from the early 1970s, his days with the Argos. Of course, some great memories of his days with, uh, with the, uh, at the helm of the uh, Fighting Irish Notre Dame and also an outstanding career with the, uh, with the Washington Redskins and later on as an NFL and television analyst. So we're certainly looking forward to talking to uh, Joe Theisman. Also coming on um, uh, in the middle of the show, John Branch, who's a Pulitzer Prize winner, New York Times feature writer, author of a compelling book that just hit the sh- at the shelves, uh, bookshelves a little while ago, uh, author of the book Boys on Ice, The Life and Death of Derek Bogard. Certainly a compelling story. I know that you're familiar with that story, uh, Mark. Uh, You've read the, 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 the New York Times feature articles from a few years back. Certainly incredibly well-written story and a story that needs to be told. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the New York Times. I, I've been a subscriber to the New York Times both online and, and the Sunday edition for years upon years. They have such a high um, standard of, of reporting. And John Branch is, uh, is quite the writer. It's quite, uh, I would recommend this book very highly. So we're certainly looking forward to having a good, uh, good talk about with John Branch about uh, really, really important issues in the area of NHL culture and also brain injuries. And Joe Theismann evokes uh, incredibly wonderful memories for uh, CFL fans of our vintage, Mark, uh, your memories of, of Joe the Throw and the Toronto Argos and the certainly the interesting teams 
and characters that played for the Toronto Argos during the early 1970s. Um, I, I don't often go down memory lane, but I do remember 1971. The, the excitement that the Argos had that year was so great that for the intra-squad game, they uh, used Varsity Stadium and they had uh, sort of the, the Blues versus the Whites. Uh, Joe Theismann was quarterback for one side. And Greg Barton, a name from... from oh, wow. Greg Barton was You've the quarterback. You've been doing your homework again, Mark. Oh, no, it's just the memory cells okay, kick in good. once in a while. Greg Barton was the quarterback for the other side. And um, Jim Stillwagon had come in that year. Jim Corrigal, Leon McQuay. And the Argos were already a strong team. Now, Wally, you had me scratching my head because I was thinking, Wally is a, an Ottawa Rough Rider fan. Why would he want Joe Theismann, the great Argo, on, on, on the show? Well, and then, let, let me tell you why. Okay, I'll tell you why. And we've got to go to break because we want to get on the phone with Joe Theismann. Uh, Joe Theismann was one of my very first football heroes. And uh, not as an Argo. As uh, as the skipper of the of the legendary Notre Dame Fighting Irish uh, in the late '60s and uh, and early and and early '70s, and uh, uh, I was a big Notre Dame fan from um, when I first uh, got interested in, in U.S. college football, and certainly remember the 1996 national championship game with Michigan State, a controversial ending, and then Joe the Throw came to uh, came to South Bend and had some. Uh, some fantastic games against the Texas Longhorns in the Cotton Bowl, and I, I remember those like they were yesterday. But, Mark, we've got to go to break, and we'll be right back to talk to Joe Theismann. It was a rainy day when Peterborough asked, how much loyalty is there in the world anymore? Well, about 14 inches, we figure. Introducing Pizzaville's new loyalty program. After your sixth order, you'll receive a large 14-inch pizza of your choice free with your seventh order. You scratch our back, we feed your face. Find out more at pizzaville.ca. That's pizzaville.ca. There's an old saying, entrepreneurship doesn't build character, it reveals character. Entrepreneurs learn to trust a person by trusting people. The law firm Rigabon Carly understands this. They know all about entrepreneurs because they work for them every day. They've earned their trust. They know that when it comes to meeting the legal and business needs of entrepreneurs, good enough is not enough. Rigabon Carly, the intelligent choice. Steel's Paint in Woodbridge, an enormous 20,000-square-foot superstore that carries nothing but the best. Superior staff, superior advice, superior selection, superior everything. When you have a really tough job to do, they can knock it down to size. They'll show you how to get it done right, and because they only sell the best of everything, you'll get it done to last. That means superior satisfaction. Steel's Paint, 4190 Steel's Avenue West in Woodbridge, the best. At Titanium Logistics, we believe that choosing the right shipping company comes down to two issues, price and cost. Most prices are competitive, will likely save you money too, but the cost of choosing the wrong company to service your cross-border freight to and from the U.S. and Mexico can be extraordinary. If it's not where it should be, when it should be, that bargain price, worthless. Titanium Logistics, on time, on budget. Call 905-266-3014. Ask for Blair Downey. This is Daryl Settler for Alt Infinity and Bond. Car buying made simple. That's what Alt Infinity is all about. No stress, no hassle, no nonsense. 
Just fun and easy and rewarding experience that will put you behind the wheel of a fabulous new or used Infinity. Expert sales staff, superior service, and the largest selection in Ontario. And the most competitive pricing anywhere. It's what makes Alt Infinity the captain's choice. Alt Infinity, Woodbridge.com, at the corner of Martin Grove and Highway 7. Striving to inspire you at every turn. Are they ever wrong about sports? I can answer that in two words. Impossible. The Naz and Wally Sports Hour on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back to the Naz and Wally Sports Hour, live from Liberty Village on the new 740 AM. Without further ado, um, legendary Toronto Argo, uh, Norder Damer, Washington Redskin NFL analyst, Joe Theismann. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, guys. How are you? I'm still recovering from the game last night, uh, oh, uh, the, goodness, F- the FSU oh game. Uh, I, I'm going to ask you a very pointed question, Joe. Uh, I'm, I'm, and we've we've talked. I'm the I'm I'm a huge Notre Dame fan, and I'm still suffering this morning. Uh, I'll be quite frank. I thought that that was a bad call at the end of the game. Notre Dame should have won that game. Your impressions? I agree. I I, I agree completely. I just. Um... You know, I jumped out of my chair in celebration and then slumped back in my chair in disappointment. Uh, it's just, you know, you get a lot of bodies running together down around the goal line. It didn't look like there was any intentional blocking by anyone. And, you know, I thought it was a great call. I thought Brian Kelly called a masterful football game. It was one of the, you know, I guess been a, having been a play caller, um, both in Canadian football and U.S. football, watching the job that Brian did calling that football game last night. I just thought it was one of those masterful jobs I've ever seen. And, you know, to come away at the end like that, um, the officials let the guys play all night. I mean, they really did. I thought up until that point, the officiating was fair on both sides. They just let them play. They let them bang into one another. They let them grab one another. They let them push to one another. And then now all of a sudden you're going to make this kind of a call. And it's just, um, it was very heartbreaking, to be honest with you. Well, it's certainly heartbreaking. What I found compelling about that particular play was that the, that the Florida State defender engaged the Notre Dame receiver first. And, oh, and, sure. And, and, you know, oh, sure. he engaged them first, and, and Robinson just snuck behind. There was no, there was no way any FSU player was going to get anywhere, anywhere near the Notre Dame receiver. It's just, it's a bad call, and uh, I'm glad we both yeah. agree on that. Uh, I, like, agree with you. I mean, you know, when you bunch receivers like that, the defenders are all clustered together. If you run two guys from the outside into the pile, people are going to run into one another. You know, it's just that's the way it is. Unless you, you know, you blatantly just try and block, it's, it's um, it's just bad. I mean, it's just I have a terrible taste in my mouth this morning. I'm trying to wash it out with orange juice. Well, we're we're completely on the same wavelength, Joe. Anyways, I want to move on to, and we'll get, certainly want to come back to Notre Dame because I uh, want to talk about some of your experiences there. But I want to I want to move on to uh, to the Toronto Argos, and I've got to tell you, Joe, it's it's been a, it's been a long time since you've played here. Uh, you played here for only three years, and uh, when, when we when we thought about uh, calling you to be on the show, I'm just amazed at the feedback we got in terms of how much you are still loved in Toronto and how many great memories that CFL fans of my vintage have of your of your time in Toronto. It certainly it doesn't seem to have faded very much, Joe. You're you're still in a beloved uh, a beloved uh, gentleman in the, in the Toronto area. And, uh, well, you're very kind. I appreciate that. And uh, just want to go back. Uh, uh, it was 
kind of uh, surprising. I don't know if it was surprising or whatever. It was a different era. What um, what motivated you to come to the CFL instead of uh, instead of uh, pursuing your opportunities in the NFL uh, at at the time that you graduated from college? Well, it, it would be it would really be one man, Leo Cahill. Um, Leo was one of the best recruiters <clears throat> in the CFL. I mean, you look at the football team that we had, the Granville Liggins. <clears throat> excuse me, Granville Liggins, uh, Jim Stillwagon, Jimmy Corrigal, uh, Billy Simons, Dave Ramey, um, Paul Desjardins, Mike Eben, Tony Morrow, Leon McQuay, Charlie Bray. Um, I mean, I, the list goes on and on and on of guys I remember. Um, and, and it's amazing. I can probably run off as many guys from the CFL that I played with that I played with in Washington, and I was there 12 years. Uh, I love the city of Toronto. They were wonderful to me when I was there. Um, every time I, I call it going home when I go back to Toronto, the fans are, are fantastic. Um, you know, I wish the Argonauts would be in a venue where they could, you know, the fans could be in a little more of an intimate setting and give the Argonauts an opportunity to feel that fan base. It's a little tough for them to play in the dome up there because it's so big and, and you just don't draw that many people. But I, I think it's, you know, it's such a it's such a special experience in my life. And we were, you know, any any great team I call characters with character. And uh, we had a you know Gene Mack. I mean, we just had a group of guys who were, you know, if if you line them up to cross the street and ask them to walk between the white lines, maybe if there were thirty two of us, five guys might walk between the white lines. The rest of them would find another way to cross the street, whether it be climbing across a wire, waiting until a traffic came to try and dodge it. <laughs> it was just a group of guys that really cared about one another, had a lot of fun. And our leader was Leo. You know, Leo was, Leo was um, an icon and a character unto himself. It's interesting you, uh, you bring up Leo Cahill, which uh, um, uh, he, uh, certainly he was, the, he, was the, he was the helmsman of the, of the, of the good ship Argo. In, in in those days, and uh, he had an interesting nickname, uh, Leo the Lip, Cahill, and uh, uh, you had an interesting nickname, Joe the Throw Theisman. Where did uh, where and we talk about it on the show? It just seems like, and you just touched on it right now that uh, the, the the concept of characters uh, doesn't seem like the characters in today's CFL, a professional sports, were the characters of uh, uh, of the old days, as I, I use that word carefully. And uh, Joe the Throw, where did that nickname come from? I don't, somebody up, somebody in Toronto just um, you know gave it to me. Of course, when I went there in '71, uh, you know we we went to the Grey Cup, and with the with the success that the football team had, being the quarterback and throwing it around as much as we did, it you know it, it just became something that someone decided to give me as a moniker, and I uh, I appreciated it very much because. You know, if you're a quarterback, that's the thing that you love to do more than anything, and that's throw the football. And so I wound up being Joe the Throw. And uh, it was, you know, there, New York had Broadway Joe, and, and, you know, there was another nickname I had was Bay Street Joe because it was the financial district. Not that we made any money, but we sure had a lot of fun. <laughs> and they still haven't made any money, but uh, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you did have a lot. Uh, we, we had uh, Angela Mosca on the show uh, a little while back, and we talked about... Uh, he's heavily involved with the Hamilton Ticats alumni, and he gets together with his um, with his ex-teammates as often as he can. And uh, you just talked very quickly about camaraderie and um, 
the sense of teammates that you had with a lot of the players you played with the Argos. Uh, do, you, do you still talk to quite a few of them? Do you still get together with them? Not really. When I get to Toronto, I get a chance yep. to see some of the guys. We had that, um, you know, when the Grey Cup, the 100th Grey Cup was held in Toronto a few years back, we um, we got together, about 15 of us, and we put together that video um, about, you know, the greatest team that never won a Grey Cup, <laughs> the Argonaut team. And, you know, I find it quite interesting, and I think it speaks volumes of the guys that were on that football team because for them, for, for, the, for someone to ask us to put together this video, when you've had Grey Cup champions in the city of Toronto, and here's a team that didn't win a Grey Cup, but I thought was probably the most unique group of characters um, when they asked us to put it together. And it was, it was a fabulous documentary um, of our coach, uh, of our team, of the guys that played. We had a chance to get together and, and, and sit and reminisce a little bit and watch the game. And, you know, I was impressed at how big the Calgary Stampeders were at that time and how little we were. I think if the weather was a little bit better, we'd probably had a better chance. Um, and uh, it just... As I, as I watch that game and I think of the, the road that we went through to get there, uh, the laughs and the fun, and you know, there are things that we did, there are the, the way we conducted ourselves, you really couldn't do it today. I mean, that's just the way society has evolved with social media, the way it exists, and, and everybody living in a politically quote-unquote correct society. And there were just we were just a bunch of guys that had a great time we had a lot of fun together we had a lot of fun on the road um and you know we couldn't wait to go play a football game you know i used to love the trips out west you know the 10 days we'd spend going out west and playing a western swing and because i love training camp i'm one of those sick guys who just enjoyed being around the game as much as i could it's um it, it was a great honor like i say to have them put together a video or a film uh, a documentary so be it um, of a group of guys that you know had a lot of fun. Joe, I'm I'm the true double blue fan here on the show this morning. I, I have to out Wally as an Ottawa Rough Rider <laughs> fan in CFL terms, but I, I've got to change the subject a little bit to the controversy about the Redskins name. Uh, you you spent more time as the Washington Redskins than uh, an Argo, and it's in the news. What, what's your take on it? Well, there's been a lot of conversation about it. Ultimately, Daniel Snyder, the owner of the Washington Redskins, will make a decision at some point, uh, or if this thing continues to go on, he won't. But it'll it'll be Dan's call all the way. Um, I know that when I wore that uniform as a Washington Redskin, I wore it with great pride to represent the Native American nations of this country, the fans of the Washington Redskins, and the organization, and myself. Um, you know, when we won the um, Super Bowl back in 82, I was given a Chiefs headdress um, by the Native American nation. Um, and so, to me, it's ultimately going to be decided by one individual. Um, there's been a lot of conversation about it. I can say this, though. In my own personal experiences, every Native American that I have met, whether it be in Albuquerque, New Mexico, or Arizona, or Nevada, no matter where it might be, I've not had one Native American come up to me and say that they would like to see the name changed. Um, I think when you hear the name Redskin, the only thing you really think of in this day and age, the only thing you think of is the football team. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really funny. I, I watched the display of the Kansas City Chief fans before their game. I watched the display of the Florida State Seminoles last night. Um, 
you know the way the way they were portrayed. Uh, but yet, I don't hear any comments about that at all. And I find it somewhat ironic that um, you know you you come out in war paint and and you know plant something in the middle of a stadium and and you have a tomahawk chopped and yet you don't hear a word from all the people that are talking about the Washington Redskins football name. Uh, I find it, you know, quite unusual, to be honest with you. Joe, we appreciate your, uh, your comments on that. And uh, just to move the uh, discussion in a different direction here, just want you to know and let our listeners know that I'm, what I'm looking at in front of the microphone right now is a Sports Illustrated Cover from January 11th, 1971. It says, Notre Dame stops Texas, Joe Theismann scoring. And you actually signed this for me. You said, to Walter, best wishes, Joe Theismann. Um, Notre Dame is, as I discussed earlier, uh, is certainly uh, had a special place, I guess, in my football heart since I was a young gentleman. And uh, uh, how, uh, how did you come upon... Uh, making the decision to go to Notre Dame. And what does Notre Dame mean to you? How is, how is it a special place for you? Well, I'll answer the second part of it first. Yeah. Um, Notre Dame is very special to me. It was, you know, I was a young, skinny little kid, one of 13 quarterbacks that wound up going to the University of Notre Dame. And, you know, I really didn't understand what the University of Notre Dame meant, what a, what a Notre Dame alumni meant until I got out and found out the great family that we have throughout the world of people that have graduated from the University of Notre Dame. The opportunity to get that type of an education, the opportunity to be able to play football, one of the most hallowed universities in the history of of college football. Uh, It's great to see us back in a nationally prominent way uh, doing, you know, what I think Notre Dame, you know, is capable of doing. And that's, you know, being, I, I think, a flag bearer for college football. Um, so for me, it was very special. And my son graduated from there. My young son, Patrick, is a Notre Dame grad, so we have it in our family. And his wife, Sharon, is a Notre Dame grad. So that's also a wonderful thrill for me. But I wound up going to Notre Dame after actually signing at North Carolina State University. Um, I had an opportunity to sort of revisit Notre Dame, and I'll never forget getting off the plane in Newark, New Jersey. We lived in South River, New Jersey, and my dad said to me, well, what do you think? And I said, I have to go to Notre Dame. And he said, why? I said, Dad, it just feels right. And, you know, Walter, it's an interesting thing. I think to all your listeners out there, um, it's funny. When we trust our gut, it's normally never really quite wrong. You know, maybe every now and then it is. But if you trust your gut, you you probably wind up making a pretty good decision because your instincts are basically telling you something. Then we take the time to analyze and think about it and screw it up. So for me, I just went with my gut, and it, it turned out to be a, a wonderful experience. I mean, I went to college. I was 152 pounds. <laughs> I graduated at 175, and I never played heavier in the CFL or the NFL than 185 pounds. I mean, I look at pictures of me in my CFL uniform. It looks like it's, <laughs> it's too big. The helmet's too big. The jersey's too big. The pants are too big. And my waist looks like it's about a 20, which it's not now, I can tell you that. Uh, Joe, uh, we've got a few minutes left. Um, um, certainly, uh, uh, we're talking to Joe Theismann, uh, former Toronto Argo, Notre Dame legend, and Washington Redskins. Um, I, I've got a confession to make, Joe. You weren't actually my favorite uh, Notre Dame player from that team. Uh, you were my second favorite. My favorite was Tom Gatewood, uh, your receiver. Oh, yeah. Because I, 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 I was a flanker on my high school football team, so I used to fantasize, actually, that 
you were throwing the football to me, and I was Tom Gatewood. But tell me, tell me a little <laughs> bit about Era Parsegian, who was a legendary football coach. Uh, legendary what, is the perfect way to describe him. Um, he was just, Era was an incredible man. I mean, I was scared to death of him. Uh, it's really funny. I mean, when you'd get called into Era's office, it's, oh, my gosh, what did I do? All he really wanted to know was how you were doing, how your grades were, how the family was. But uh, your mind runs away with you when you start thinking of all these different things. Why coach wanted to call me in to blow a play? Uh, what did I do wrong? You think back on the, the week or the month before, before he ever called you in, saying, geez, what, what's he talking to me about? But just um, a, an incredibly in-charge person. I mean, it was era's football team. It was uh, the era of era. And it was like that for Lou Holtz as well. Lou was another one of those legendary coaches at Notre Dame that, you know, they just they just ran that program. I think with such great integrity uh, that it was, you know, phenomenal. And Brian Kelly is beginning to establish that now with his tenure there. Um, each of these men have established an era of their own, an identity of their own for their for their football operations. And uh, Era was just one of the very special men that I was fortunate enough to be a part of of his team. Joe, one last uh, one last question. I want to get into. Uh... Uh, an issue. Ever have any concussions when you played foot uh, in at any level of football? Oh yeah, I had I've had them in the NFL. I had them in the CFL. I think it was in. I'm thinking it was maybe Calgary or Edmonton. Um, one of the linebackers broke his broke his arm on my broke his arm my helmet on my head, and uh, in the first quarter of a game, I got completely knocked out. I mean, I was out for a quarter a quarter plus. Do you um, do you suffer any lingering effects from any of your concussions? I do. I have uh, I have uh, short-term memory loss uh, every now and then. If I close my eyes for a long period of time, I'll lose my balance. So yeah, I am. Um, are you are you, are you part Are you part of the NFL concussion settlement? I am. I am. Um, yes. And you and you've that. opted in. You haven't obviously haven't opted out. No, I haven't opted out. And I, I have not opted out because and it, the point is is um, it happened to us. It's happening to me as I grow older. Um, I see a little bit more signs, not necessarily just of age, but of, uh, of things that are residual. And I've had brain scans done and, you know, all of the tests done um, a few years back as well. So I do realize that um, it's a game that I played. Um, it's, it's a part of the game. It's a violent contact game. That's why I'm involved with a company um, as a consultant by the name of Unequal. And parents of the kids that play lacrosse, hockey, baseball, football, soccer. They can go to our website, which is unequal.com, and look at it's a Kevlar inset that goes in the helmet um, to try and help protect um, against, you know, concussions. And our research and our studies have proven that, you know, it, um, it it's a great, Thing to have available, and it, and I emphasize this to a lot of the parents that have junior hockey players. Um, it's it's just like football. I mean, it's a contact sport. You're going to contact the ice. You're going to contact the glass, the walls. Um, you know, possibly get hit with a stick. You're going to get checked in certain ways. But you know, it's unequal. It's a Kevlar inset, and um, that's what because of what happened to me when I found out about this company. I wanted to get involved in any way I possibly could because I think there's a great need for protection for at every level of sport. 
so that's that's why I got involved in it. Joe, uh, our time has run short. Uh, Joe, the throw Theisman on us this morning on the Nazamali Sports Hour. We had uh, we had fun talking about uh, the, the old days in the Argos, Joe, and and with your Notre Dame and your and your comments on concussions and the Redskins. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. We really really appreciate it. Brought back so many wonderful memories for for myself and for a lot of our listeners. And uh, thanks, keep, keep keep well, my friend. And uh, Hopefully someday we'll do this again. I appreciate it. Look forward to coming home soon again. Thanks so much. That was uh, Joe Theismann, certainly. uh, uh, Some great memories from the early 1970s, Mark. Uh, Some great great players that he talked about. Uh, What a cast of characters those early 1970 Argos were. It was great hearing the names of the Argos. Um, I, I'm glad I'm here to prevent you from turning this, this whole show into Fighting Irish Radio. But uh, the double blue, Theismann, uh, it would be hard to say he's the greatest Argo quarterback because Doug Flutie. we had Flutie. We had Flutie, but let's say tied for the greatest. Anyways, uh, that, was, uh, that was Joe Theismann. Um, just before we go to Pulitzer Prize winner John Branch, just to remind our listeners that the Naz and Wally Sports Hour are big supporters of the Foundation Fighting Blindness. It's uh, our charity of choice. We support that organization. They do compelling research into eye disease. And if you've been watching the news lately, there's this outstanding uh, world-class doctor, Toronto Western Hospital, Dr. Robert Devigny, who's working on a bionic eye and is actually implanting computer chips. And it's an incredible research project and returning eyesight on a technological basis to people who have lost it. The Foundation Fighting Blindness, ffb.ca. Next we have with us to talk about a compelling story. Um, John Branch, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning author, he's a feature writer for the New York Times, has just written a book on Derek Bugard, the life and death of Derek Bugard, Boy on Ice. Good morning, John. Hey, good morning. Glad to be here. How are you today? I'm good. I live on the West Coast, so it's a... Oh, it's, it's early. Dark. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we got you up early. We apologize for that, but thank you for joining us. Uh, very quickly, for uh, the, an executive summary of the Derek uh, Bugard story, and correct me if I'm wrong, he was uh, an NHL player uh, uh, known as uh, an enforcer, a goon, whatever, however you want to refer to him. Um, later stages of his career, he uh, got addicted to, to painkillers and booze, and he was found dead in an apartment in Minneapolis. And you wrote a compelling book about all of that. Um, uh, John, who, uh, there's two themes that I, I, I actually read your book, two themes that come out of that book. Um, mm-hmm. One is the whole concept of, of brain injury and disease. Uh, professional athletes suffer for all, and we actually just talked to Joe Theismann. I don't know if you heard that. Oh, I was surprised I that he was actually out. suffering from concussion symptoms. I'd never known that. And the whole concept of the culture of hockey and, and, and the role of the enforcer in hockey. What, what is the central theme of your book? Well, I think it's a, it's a big stew, if you don't mind me using that word. It's, um, you know, there's a lot of different things going on with Derek's life. And, and part of the reason that I wrote the book was because I, I think it's very easy for us to look back and say, well, Derek Bogart lived a very simple life. Um, these enforcers are very simple, one-dimensional people. Um, and I and I wanted to point out and, and try to explain that you know Derek Bogard may have been as complex as anybody that we've that I've ever come across. Um, 
certainly when when after he died, the family donated his brain to Boston University, and subsequently they found that he had a severe a case of brain disease called CTE, um, as anybody that they had ever seen uh, at, at the age of 28. Um, he spent the last two or three years of his life addicted to pain ki- pain pills. Um, that seemed to have started mostly with team doctors prescribing him um, many, many, many uh, oxycodone and hydrocodone to try to keep him on the ice. Um, it's, it's all very, very tangled, and I think people will come away from the book not really having that answer that, that you asked me. It's kind of wondering, boy, what did happen to him? A lot of things going on that uh, you can all say sort of led to to his downfall. John, I want to just remind her, because uh, I, I have, I did purchase the book online, and um, I, I highly recommend it to, to our listeners. Uh, you're, you are, and I'm not trying to pat you on the back, but you are a fabulous writer. Um, um, you've done a great job in, in distilling this really, really important story. And the book is Boy on Ice, The Life and Times of Derek Bugard. I'm sure you can find it in all good bookstores. I personally found it at, at uh, Amazon.ca. I'm sure you can get it online at Indigo. Um, it's, uh, it's certainly well worth, uh, a well worth read. And you just drew upon something that um, I, wanted, I wanted to discuss a little bit further, uh, is that um, enforcers are sometimes seen as cartoon characters or caricatures. And you use the word, the term one-dimensional. Derek Bugard wasn't a one-dimensional character. And in his early years, he was often referred to as a gentle giant. He actually had – he did have a soft streak to him off the ice. It was almost like a boy inside a man's body. And uh, in, in part of your book in his early years, he, he, he wasn't even a bully uh, outside of the hockey arena. He was actually one of the kids that was picked upon – uh, on his uh, because of his size, and um, tell us a little bit what you discovered about the off ice Derek Bugard. Yeah, I think uh, people who knew him as an adult would say, you know, for the most part, he was very much a gentle giant. He was awkward. He didn't have a lot of friends, um, which would surprise a lot of people. I think I've used the the term that he was sort of a Superman on the ice and a Clark Kent off of it, uh, a little kind of goofy and awkward. Um, when he was a kid, uh, he was his family moved a lot. His father was a, a Mountie with an RCMP member and had to move every three years or so. And so they were going from small town to small town, and he never really fit in. He was always a big kid, but a big kind of goofy lug. And uh, some of the older kids, when he moved to town, would then kind of use him as a litmus test for their own toughness. So he was beat up a lot or at least pushed around a lot by a lot of older kids who saw him as this kind of big, goofy, dumb kid. Uh, new kid, and um, you know, it was, it, I guess it became a little bit ironic that um, you know years later he became the big tough guy, kind of grew out of that, but he never really grew out of his shyness, his awkwardness, and this kind of sort of teddy bear uh, mentality that he had with the people that were actually close to him. John, I haven't read the book, but I read the series of articles in the New York Times that preceded the book, and mm-hmm. I have a question. Um, it's my suspicion that Canadians have a, a blind spot when it comes to the sheer violence of hockey fighters. Do you think that this story had to be told by someone, an American such as yourself, an outsider to hockey culture? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't know that to be the case. Um, I guess it is the case simply because I'm the one who happened to write this particular story. Um, and, I, and I think maybe there is some usefulness to it. Um, I did cover hockey for a few years. So I know enough about hockey, I think, to, to speak intelligently about it. 
but there might be um, somewhat of an advantage to have a sort of an outsider's uh, arm's reach um, view of hockey. Um, it's interesting that you bring this up because just about a week or two ago, uh, I was uh, doing an event in Minneapolis where Derek lived for, for many years. And in the audience that night was, was Derek Bogart's father, Len. And afterward, I, uh, after this big discussion, I, I went to Len and I, and I said, you know, well, what do you think of that? And he said, wow, it's barbaric. And I said, well, what do you mean it's barbaric? And he said, I guess I've always been so close to hockey. My own kids are enforcers and were enforcers. I never really considered until you hear people from the outside talk about it just how barbaric this is. And I do think there is some sort of sense that when you're close to hockey, uh, fighting the enforcing just seems very normal. It's certainly a part of hockey, a long tradition in hockey. And you have somebody who comes from outside the game, and you try to explain to them what fighting is and why it happens and that the game stops so the two guys can come off the bench basically and fight. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And so I thought it was interesting, not to ramble on here, but I thought it was interesting to have Len Bogard just recently in the last couple of weeks really change his attitude toward fighting um, because he now sort of sees it as an outsider as, as opposed to an insider. Uh, speaking of changing attitudes, I remember from the, the article that Gary Bettman seemed to say there was no link between hockey fighting and CTE. I'm wondering, uh, Wally's read the book and doesn't feel that there's been an update in Bettman's position. Uh, are you aware of an update? I am not aware of an update. Um, it's not a subject that's been discussed a lot. I know there are um, some other journalists working currently on stories about enforcers and concussions and have been unable to get uh, Mr. Bettman to sit down for an interview. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly when or if the NHL will, will sort of change its stance on the science. Um, I think a, a, a logical precursor to all this or example of all this might come from the NFL, and the NFL dismissed the science for a long time until they got to about brain number 17 or 18. And for whatever reason, then they said, okay, we should sit down and talk with these people and get a better sense of what we're, what we're dealing with here. It, um, the NHL has four brains so far, and, and maybe there's a number out there. That oh, will, that I'm, sure there I'm sure there's a lot more. Um, there's almost like a, it's almost like the 1960s uh, smoking denial. Uh, uh, you know, Everybody knew that smoking was wrong for you, but it took I don't know how many years to, to draw that causal link. Uh, I, I'm just, I just find it um, inconceivable that there isn't a link uh, based, on, um, based on what's happening on there, based on the recent New York Times article that came. We, we spoke to Joe Delamalure on the show, I think it was about three weeks ago, which was two days after the New York Times article about um, the study where they found that one in three NFL players will suffer some sort of brain disease by the time they're at the age of 60. So if, if somebody, if, if, if the NHL or the NFL wants to disregard that evidence, um, they're, they're living in a fool's paradise. Um, and certainly Len Bogard has, if I'm correct, has a wrongful death uh, lawsuit that's pending against the, uh, the NHL. Do you know anything about that one, John? Yeah, I do. Actually, there are two things at play from a lawsuit perspective. Len Bogard and his family, they do have a wrongful death lawsuit um, pending against the NHL. That has more to do with the prescription drugs and the, the NHL substance abuse and behavior health program. Um, he feels very strongly that um, the reason that Derek got, or got addicted to prescription pills was because of keen doctors and that the system itself then let him down, did not do enough to support him. Um, but there are um, several dozen NHL players, former NHL players, have lined up um, for a uh, class action lawsuit that is now in Minnesota. Um, that has more to do with the concussions. And, it, you know, again, we saw this with the NFL. Eventually there were 4,500 NFL players 
lined up uh, for a lawsuit against the NFL. The NFL settled it about a year ago for, I think, $800 million or so. Um, you know, all these things will need a tipping point, and maybe it's when the NHL gets, you know, 500 former players or something to line up that the NHL then deals with either trying to settle it or fighting it in court. Um, one part uh, I, I found uh, um, very, very interesting is the incredible access that you were provided by the Bogart family and, and a lot of other people who had various different types of relationships um, with Len, with uh, with Derek Bugard, and uh, and certainly Len Bugard, Derek's father, uh, provided you access to all kinds of other material, which it would have been very difficult for a writer to have access to because it was really a lot of it was family material, and one of it was the uh, the quotation mark sixteen pages um, that was in that was in Derek's handwriting. Um, tell me what insights you got from reading those 16 pages into the, into the emotional pain that uh, Derek Bugard was, was suffering? Yeah, um, 16 pages were obviously a huge part of this because, you know, I'm writing a book about... And if you could just... Ex- actually- I, I'm sorry, I, I should have explained to our listeners what those 60... Perhaps you can just explain what I mean by those 16 pages. Yeah, you know, when I first sat down with uh, Len Bogart and, and one of Derek's brothers, Aaron, um, in Minneapolis, you know, that goes back now three years ago after Derek died, and got to know them for a couple of hours over coffee and said, you know, we want to do the story about the brain and about Derek and who he was and would love to have as much of your input as you're willing to provide. Um, I shortly thereafter got a call from Len saying, hey, um, we found in his belongings 16 pages of handwritten notes that he had left behind. And I believe he had been writing down basically his memories of his life um, as a kid, perhaps for a biography. I'm not sure exactly what was going on, but I, I got those passed on to me. And they're, they're fascinating in that, you know, trying to tell a story about somebody who's no longer with us, somebody I never met, I now have 16 pages of his own memories written in his own hand. And they're all talk about, you know, the first time he went to the Regina Pats camp and the fights he got into. Um, his, his memories of driving across the prairie in Saskatchewan late at night with his father, listening to the radio. Um, they're all very, very telling, kind of heartfelt things that even if I had a chance to interview Derek before he died and talk to him about it, I'm not sure they would come out the same way as they did writing him. And so I think those are a very important part of the book to sort of humanize Derek and show that he was just a kid, just like we all were kids, had the same sort of feelings and emotions and fears that we all have. And, and yeah, that became a big part of the book. Is it fair enough, John? And we're speaking to John Branch, uh, uh, writer of Boy on Ice, The Life and Death of Derek Bugard. You can find it. Uh, it's just come out in bookstores and online. Is it fair to say, John, that uh, that Derek never really enjoyed being an enforcer? You know, it, it's hard to say. I'm not sure that's totally fair. He, I don't, by no, uh, I, don't, I really don't think he enjoyed the fights. Um, he, he went through a lot of stuff with the fights, a lot of pain and a lot of emotional toll just like all enforcers I've talked to have that they keep for the most part secret. Um, Derek loved what it brought him. You know, without fighting, he would he knew he would not be in the NHL. He knew he would never have been a professional hockey player. He loved the idea of, of belonging. He loved the idea of being able to be part of a team and being um, respected and, and liked by his teammates. You know, I think the greatest satisfaction an enforcer can get is not only to cheer the crowd, but the banging of the sticks against the boards. That tells them that they belong and that they are respected because there are teammates there who appreciate that you're doing something for them 
that they uh, probably aren't willing to do themselves. And I think Derek really liked that. So I always answer that by saying I don't think he loved enforcing, but he loved what it brought to him. When I was uh, uh, reading the book, I almost got a sense that there was a certain inevitability um, to the Derek Bugard story in the sense that when he got on the treadmill, when, 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 when he got into that big scrap when he was 15 or 15 years old and the scouts mm-hmm. noticed him, that after that he just he just got on a treadmill and and everything just sort of went in a path he had no choice to be the enforcer because he, he really didn't have much skill as a hockey player I mean in his last year of junior he scored one goal in his career in the NHL he had three goals in six years so it, it's almost like he got on a treadmill and the only way to stay on it was to get into the bad habits that he that that he that he got into was there any point in time where where Derek could have could have got off, could have got out of out of what he was doing yeah it's a it's an interesting question because i think it's easy to look back on this you know with 2020 hindsight and say boy this you know it, you can feel it kind of getting worse and worse as his career goes on and on but you know when you're that close to it or when you're living year by year or day by day you don't necessarily realize it that it's happening I think that's that with Derek. You know, year by year, when he was a kid, teenager, he wasn't even sure he was going to play hockey the next year. Uh, his mom, when he was 19 years old, begged him to quit. She's like, you got to go back to school. you got to figure out what you're going to do with your life. And he said, Mom, I want to play hockey. Sure enough, a few weeks later, he gets drafted by the Wild in the seventh round. He just kind of kept moving down this path um, without any sort of big-picture implications going on. And, um, and I, I think now we look back and say, boy, it, you can sort of see he was kind of marching um, toward trouble. I don't know that things could have gone differently for him without him stepping away from hockey. Um, but, you know, then again, you know, as people as people who are close to him will say, you know, the night that he died, it was an accidental overdose. It was not a lot of alcohol, and it was not a lot of oxycodone in his blood, but it happened to be enough of a toxic mix that it killed him. But what if he would have lived? What if that would not have killed him that day? Would he still be playing hockey? Would he be okay? Um, I think that's part of what tears people apart that know him or knew him that they were like, God, he was so close. If he just would have lived through that night, maybe that would have been enough to scare him. Maybe he would be on a totally different path now. Anyways, John, our uh, time has uh, run to a close for this. Uh, we certainly thank you um, for coming on and talking about what I consider to be some very, very important topics, uh, some very compelling issues. It will be interesting to see how the NHL uh if and when it chooses to change its uh, culture about enforcers, uh, I certainly think that that day is coming, uh, whether forced or unforced. We've had John Branch, uh, writer of Boy on Ice, The Life and Death of Derek Bogart. It's in bookstores. Go give it a read. It'd be a great Christmas present uh, for anybody who's interested in reading about good and uh, important topics. John, thanks so much for this, getting up at an ungodly hour and joining us and uh, telling us about the Derek Bugard story. We really appreciate this. I was glad to do it. Thanks so much. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Anyways, we'll be right back after commercial on the Naz and Wally Sports Hour. It was a rainy day in Pizzaville when I got my fill. Ponzo Combo, Ponzo Combo. You get two Ponzerati with two toppings each, plus two big Pepsis, the deal is a peach. Ponzo Combo, Ponzo Combo. Just $13.99, that's low. For show, let's, whoa. Ponzo Combo, Ponzo Combo. Visit pizzaville.ca or call 736-3636.
At 20,000 square feet, Steel's Paint and Woodbridge is Canada's largest independent paint store. Big deal, right? Big deal, yes. The best brands, the best staff, the best advice, the best of everything. From color matching to brand selection, whether you're a pro or a DIYer, we'll look after you from the minute you walk in to the minute you walk in a second time as a completely satisfied customer. Big store, big deal, bigger satisfaction. Simple. Steel's Paint, 4190 Steel's Avenue West in Woodbridge. At Titanium Logistics, we believe that choosing the right shipping company comes down to two issues, price and cost. Most prices are competitive, will likely save you money too, but the cost of choosing the wrong company to service your cross-border freight to and from the U.S. and Mexico can be extraordinary. If it's not where it should be, when it should be, that bargain price, worthless. Titanium Logistics, on time, on budget. Call 905-266-3014. Ask for Blair Downey. This is Daryl Settler for Alt Infinity and Vaughn. Car buying made simple. That's what Alt Infinity is all about. No stress, no hassle, no nonsense. Just fun and easy and rewarding experience that will put you behind the wheel of a fabulous new or used Infinity. Expert sales staff, superior service, and the largest selection in Ontario. And the most competitive pricing anywhere. It's what makes Alt Infinity the captain's choice. Alt Infinity, Woodbridge.com, at the corner of Martin Grove and Highway 7. Striving to inspire you at every turn. There's an old saying, entrepreneurship doesn't build character, it reveals character. Entrepreneurs learn to trust a person by trusting people. The law firm Rigabon Carly understands this. They know all about entrepreneurs because they work for them. Every day, they've earned their trust. They know that when it comes to meeting the legal and business needs of entrepreneurs, good enough is not enough. Rigabon Carly, the intelligent choice. The Naz and Wally Sports Hour is a paid program. Opinions expressed on the show are those of Naz and Wally and their guests. They never argue sports. They just explain while they're always correct. The boys are back. The Naz and Wally Sports Hour on Zoomer Radio. The new AM740. Welcome back to the Naz and Wally Sports Hour, live from Liberty Village. Back joining us, he's uh, been goofing off down in Alabama, my co-host Naz. How are you doing, Naz? Doing great, Wally. How are you, Mark? We're doing, we're doing fantastic, but Naz, you've got to hurry back. You know, this, this Kennedy character here, he's, he's a tough guy to do a show with. Naz, I'm, I'm behaving myself. I'm keeping <laughs> all of my um, uh, snide comments off air, uh, but Naz, come back. I miss you. We've got to get rid of this Wally guy. <laughs> Thanks very much, and he's turning beet red as he says that. Anyways, Naz, you were at an interesting football game yesterday at uh, at, at Alabama. The the uh, the Tide laid a beating on uh, Texas A and M, uh, and did you survive the tailgate? Well, I survived the tailgate. I don't think uh, uh, Texas A and M survived it, though. That's for sure. They were they were just awful. Well, Bama uh, Bama looked pretty good. Yeah, they rolled over them really hard. They scored on every possession in the first half, and, they, and in the first one in the second half, and then Blake Stems was pulled at 52 nothing. That score could have been in the 80s if uh, the uh, lineup had stayed in. Tell, tell us a little bit about the experience of attending a uh, major college football game down in the States. Well, it's certainly, uh, certainly an incredible experience you don't find in Canada. Yeah, 103,000 people. You're sitting in a stadium that's just jam-packed in red, mostly red. There's some Texas A&M people there. But the atmosphere is absolutely tremendous. And the tailgating, bar none, the best I've ever seen. 
It yeah. is uh, the whole town shuts shuts down when the uh, Alabama plays, and it's uh, it's a terrific uh, experience for sure. Yeah, I was at the Ohio State game uh, three weeks ago, so I certainly understand. Uh, it's like the whole the whole state shuts down and. Uh, Hopefully next year I finish, uh, I complete my bucket list, and I finally make it to South Bend. Uh, there you we're go. Gonna, we're going. You and I are going to the to going to the to the Irish uh, USC game next year. Okay. Okay, we're on USC and Notre Dame next year. You and I, Wally. That's good. Anyways, uh, we can't do a show without talking about the Toronto Maple Leafs, and we got we got three minutes left. Uh, we had a, the Leafs had an interesting week. Uh, they they started off well. They they pounded the Rangers last Sunday. They, uh, Phil Kessel scored a world-class goal to, to, in overtime to beat the uh, Avalanche. I don't know if you saw the game Friday night or you read the reports, but they, they, they laid a stinker Friday night. But they, they play, played a pretty good game last night, just didn't get the result. Uh, any thoughts, Naz? Well, uh, the Friday night game, I heard it was a stinker. I didn't catch any of the two games because it's hard to get uh, uh, somebody to watch a game in Alabama or in Atlanta where I was. But... Uh, uh, I heard they played really bad, and I heard they threw another sweater on the ice. Yeah, they threw That's another true. sweater on the ice. And, and you know what? And, and they've got to stop that. I mean, I, I just, you know, uh, you know, I guess fans are entitled to do what they what they can do. It's their sweater. Uh, you want to throw away a $200 sweater, sweater, I guess it's your business. But I, I think that's a little bit insulting to the to the to the rest of the fans uh you can boo or whatever but i i don't find the uh i don't find i find the the sweater tossing episodes a little bit distasteful listen i want to bring you since you you weren't able to watch the games i want to give you some good news okay. uh david clarkson we we have found david clarkson uh you'll be you'll be thrilled to know that uh i've been a big david clarkson critic on this show i am the first to admit uh, he played a good game Friday night, and he played a better game last night. They seem to have found a little niche for him. He was actually a very effective player uh, last night, Naz, and uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping that this is a new turn of events for David Clarkson because if he plays the game at uh, the way he played it last night, he certainly can be an effective player. Well, that's good. I'm glad. Uh, I, I think Clarkson just had a bad year last year. He just went into into the season on the wrong foot, having the 10-game suspension, and then after that, it just was uh, not there for him. But uh, you know, what, I, I'm I'm reading stuff, and I and I look at the Leafs, right? And not making the move with Carlisle in the summer and uh, Dion. They were talking about trading him, not trading him, trading him, not trading him. They're under the microscope, both of them. And every time there's a bad game that the Leafs play, it's always fire Carlisle, get rid of Funo. Yeah, it's always the same. Okay, Anyways, are we, we going to go through this the whole year? Oh, in Toronto, anything's possible. Anyways, Naz, we've got uh, we've got 25 seconds left. The producer's giving me the uh, wrap-up sign. Listen, uh, travel safely. Uh, get no back here next Sunday, and uh, looking forward to having you back uh, next Sunday. We can talk more Leafs. Anyways, I got to ha- pull, pull up my Tony Morrow sweater, number 11. <laughs> that's, Joe Theismann mentioned him. That was uh, that was really funny. <laughs> that's fantastic. Safe travels, okay. my friend. Be safe. See you, boys. See you, Naz. Anyways, Mark, thanks for joining me this morning. Uh, This has been the Naz and Wally Sports Hour, and we'll be back next Sunday morning, same time. Have a great week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.